Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm especially good because we're going to have a chance to talk with someone who's been a profound benefactor for me personally, which is a term that really means something to me, as well as a teacher and a friend and just one heck of a person all the way around, Tara Brock. So I'm really happy that we're going to be doing this. I'm super happy to be here with Tara. Tara is the founder and guiding teacher of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., one of the largest non-residential meditation centers in the United States. Prior to that, as you said, she earned her doctorate in clinical psychology and developed a clinical practice. Her teaching blends those two backgrounds, Western psychology and Eastern spiritual practices, mindful attention to our inner life, and then a full compassionate engagement with the outside world, which has been perhaps particularly challenging recently. Tara has taught all over the world and is the author of three books, Radical Acceptance, True Refuge, and most recently, Radical Compassion, which I believe just came out in paperback. And her podcast is also, I think, the largest Buddhism-focused podcast in the world, which is pretty incredible. If you like what we're doing here, you should definitely give it a listen. So Tara, it's great to have you here today. How are you doing? Farsh, thank you. I am totally delighted to be with both of you. You're both dears in my heart. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. One reason I wanted to really talk with you, including in terms of current events, has to do both with your new book, Radical Compassion, which integrates acceptance and compassion. And in particular, I want to ask you about your use of the word radical. Your first book was Radical Acceptance. What's the distinction between acceptance and compassion or radical acceptance and radical compassion? What did you mean by that, by drawing attention to that word, including perhaps in light of current conditions? I've always loved the word radical ever since I thought I was a left-wing radical back in the old days. So it has a positive valence for me. <laughs> but it has to do with going to the roots. And there are many expressions of the heart that are really beautiful. And I was really wanting to explore the most pure and full-bodied expression of acceptance and compassion, like what they mean really in terms of freedom. So in both books, whether it, with acceptance, it's like, what does it mean when we unconditionally accept this moment as it is, and we fully are embodied, so we're not just accepting, but we're actually feeling the moment, so we're completely here, present. And with compassion, what is true compassion? What's mature compassion look like, feel like, and how do we cultivate it? And it became really clear to me that a lot of people have an abstract sense of compassion. Like we'll hear about if we don't have COVID or people losing parents with COVID, but if it's not happening to us, there'll be something in us that goes, oh, that's so sad. But it's abstract. It's not a tenderness in the heart. So radical compassion is embodied. You know, we're fully here to experience being touched by the suffering. And it includes an activity of caring and engaged caring. So again, with both of those qualities of the heart, I really wanted to bring alive what it meant to have the most mature, evolved version of them. You're a psychologist as well as longtime Buddhist practitioner, and you have roots in Eastern traditions as well, broadly. 
And also you're a practical person, you have a functioning business, you've raised a son. I wondered how you wove all those threads together, especially in your interest in getting at the roots of things, really the deep roots. Well, that's like a really big and deep question, Rick. (laughs) Well, I'm a radical too. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) So one of my guiding teachings from, this is Srinur Sargadatta, and I come back to this one quote all the time, is that wisdom tells me I'm nothing, love tells me I'm everything, and between the two, my life flows. And I find with the radical deep practices, we actually see it unveils what is true, which is there's no thing or person here. And there's a really deep wisdom in that, a real freedom from holding on and an openness. And we're also everything. It's like when we sense that emptiness, there is this vastness that feels that the whole world is part of us. And this is going somewhere in terms of your question that I find in my own life, if I go off to a retreat, it gets very quiet and I can see clearly the emptiness, the no-thingness, that there's nobody here. But it's not until I'm in engagement with the world and feeling both the suffering and also as I'm just looking at you because you're a dear friend, seeing the goodness and really feeling it, that I sense the everythingness, that we really are of the same consciousness and awareness. We're emergent expressions of it. And so in my life, it's been a gift to be both really in the mix with humans, with social activism, with the whole mess, (laughs) and also create the pauses, the silence, and the stillness that allows that seeing through to the radical roots of the nature of things. And I feel like that blend, that flowing, it's not really a flow between one thing and another. They're utterly interpenetrating, but that feels like a very alive path to me. I can feel it as you speak it. We'll talk further, I'm sure, about ways in which people even listening right now can tap into some of what you're talking about. I find myself just listening to you slowing down. It's as if the sediments in the pond of the mind are gradually settling down. And in the traditional metaphor, you know, the water was always clear inherently all along. And as the sediments settle, the jewels on the bottom are increasingly revealed and all those really, really (laughs) yummy, yummy, good things. Uh, So this all might kind of initially sound a little abstract, perhaps, perhaps, but really when you just sort of feel into it, And as you say, come into the root of it in this moment with your own experience. It's really very profound. So I'm really happy we're exploring here. It can be really practical. It can be as practical as I'm here and Jonathan and I, my husband, have a disagreement and we take timeouts. I get really, really quiet. I really say, don't believe your thoughts. Don't believe your thoughts. Just come into what's right here. I bring a lot of compassion to what's right here. And as things quiet and open, I realize that there's really nobody here that to get offended and there's nobody there to offend. <laughs> but the play really triggers things. That, so in other words, the very real feelings, but there's more emptiness. And then it gives me the freedom to feel tender and to then apologize or to then speak my truth. So I find in a, it's a very worldly thing to be able to learn to quiet the mind and sense it's not so personal 
but also have this tenderness that then allows us to be with each other in a much more intimate way. Mm. You said a couple of times, there's nobody there. And just for people who may not quite understand what you mean by that, I'm, I'm assuming there's a recognition of the Tara body-mind process occurring that's a little distinct from the Jonathan body-mind process occurring. But can you say more what you mean by nobody there? It's a felt sense of identity. In other words, mm -hmm. there's still a sense of a, a personhood with body, mind, feelings, but the deep, profound sense of the who I really am cannot be described in any exclusive way to that. There's just a quality of beingness, a field mm -hmm. of awakeness and tenderness that is just like an ocean to waves. It can't be defined by the waves. So the waves can come and go, but there's a lot more freedom in relating because I'm not taking them personally. It's not like that is my identity. Less ego, less self. How do you maintain that, Tara, while also being motivated to change yourself in positive ways, if that's a motivation for you? That's a beautiful question. How do we get motivated if we're not identified? <laughs> go Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so there's a real difference between ego-based motivation, which has some striving and clinging, and what I consider as aspiration, which is really the wise heart calling us home. And you can actually feel it in your body that when I'm going after things and motivated after ambition, which happens, and I forgive it, and I sometimes enjoy it, but it just happens. There's a fear I'm going to fail, and there's a grasping after, and my body is more tense. When there's an aspiration, like, can I be with you two in this interview and be as real and authentic and curious myself and caring? And as I even say that, I can feel the aspiration towards it. And there's no clutching at all. There's just a, a field of tenderness. So it doesn't come from a sense of a small self. It comes more from that awake heart place. Mm. Is that the same way that you balance self-acceptance with wanting to change yourself in meaningful ways? The reason I ask is because that's a question that we actually get a lot from people who listen to the podcast, because we talk a lot about self-acceptance and self-compassion. And, you know, the natural question is, how are we kind to ourselves and accept ourselves while also wanting to change aspects of our life or be motivated out in the world? How can we accept ourselves while also guiding ourselves toward good ends? Is that how you do that by having a more kind of aspirational orientation? Basically, that's one part of it. And again, I, I really love the question because I often go back to Carl Rogers great American psychologist who said, really, it's not until I accepted myself just as I was that I was free to change. Mm, <laughs> so mm -hmm. there has to be a radical acceptance, like a very deep, profound level of this life is how it's unfolding is, first of all, nobody's controlling it. It's happening out of all sorts of conditions and causes that are way beyond when I was born, you know, and then a compassion that's just tender towards all that and says, you know, everything belongs. It's it's like a wave in the ocean. It belongs. It doesn't mean it's not going to change, but it belongs in this moment. And I find that when I get to that radical compassion of this belongs, this jealousy belongs, this comparing mind, this judgment belongs, this anger I might be feeling right now to do with our world belongs. In those moments that there's radical 
acceptance and compassion towards that, it actually frees me to transform the very waves that are belonging. (laughs) There's much more fluidity. There's more of, it's not true choice, I don't think, but there's a freedom, a sense to make choices that are much more aligned with my heart. Do you find that it's scary for people? When I just imagine what might come up for myself or others to utterly, radically accept all my warts or to truly accept the world as it is, let's say, maybe even have compassion for it. What are some of the, you know, speed bumps or stone walls that come up for people in the way? (laughs) The things that get in the way, yeah. And could you give us some advice about that? First of all, there are many bumps. And the reason is, and I often will do a kind of exercise where I'll say, you know, okay, you know, what really is between you and accepting yourself, embracing yourself with love in this moment. And people will immediately fixate on their imperfections. And with that, this belief that if I don't judge this and change this, I will never get better. I might get worse. I might be a certain way that other people will reject me. So we really have a fear that acceptance means then I'm going to go down the tubes and be rejected and be a bad person forever. And the belief is that it's really by judging myself that I'll change. And the truth is that our judgment has a very good intention. I mean, it is an adaptive kind of an energy that's trying to nudge us into being that better person. The challenge is for any of the most meaningful kinds of transformation, it just doesn't work. It's like just the way we know punishment does not heal a person, that the healing comes from awareness, from seeing the patterns and holding it with tenderness. And that shifts our sense of who we are so that there's more freedom to respond to the world aligned with our strengths and our resources. So when that comes up for people, when they come to those beliefs of, I'll never get better if I don't keep judging myself, you know, sometimes I'll we'll explore together, well, has it ever really worked? You know, (laughs) what do you find happens when you really judge yourself harshly? I'm thinking of one man I was working with who hated his anger and his anger caused a lot of suffering and his wife was considering divorcing him and he hated himself for his anger and he had hated himself for a long time. And I said, has it helped? He said, no, but I don't deserve to forgive myself for it. And then we started exploring his anger and really going, well, what's under it? And he could feel how much shame was under it, that he felt like he was an unworthy person. He felt like he was a failing person. And when other people did things that made him feel that way more, he would lash out at them. And so when he got in touch with that, he immediately saw his father powerless against his rage and breaking dishes in the kitchen when he was like 11 years old because, you know, he was so angry at his wife. And he said, oh my God, it was the same for my father. He was like this ashamed little boy who would go into a rage and that's what I'm doing. And then he started getting really in touch with his pain around that, how he actually could then have compassion towards that little boy in him. That was the beginning of the healing. It didn't come from harshly judging himself for his anger. It came from deepening his attention to that energy and finding out what was driving it. Because what we find when we 
look behind any of the things we call bad about ourselves, any imperfection, there's an unmet need, always. There's a little metaphor I give a lot that has helped me immeasurably, and that's of a person walking in the woods and they see a little dog and they go to pet it, and the dog lurches at them with fangs bared, and they go from being friendly to really angry at the dog, and then they see that the dog has its leg in a trap. And then they shift again, oh, you poor thing. They might not get close to it because it's still dangerous, but their heart is no longer carrying anger because they understand. So if we could see how when we act in our imperfect ways, we have a leg in a trap. And when others do, they do too. No matter how violent and destructive, they have their leg in a trap. And we might need to restrain them. We might need to keep a distance they still are hurting. First, let me say that's really touching. I'm going to carry that with me. But I just wanted to step back and highlight something that I got out of your first book, Radical Acceptance. And I've heard you talk about the trance of unworthiness and other qualities, but the quality of a trance. We're mistaken. We're ignorant. We're deluded. We're hypnotized. We're, we're in a kind of trance. And I wondered if you could speak to the kind of trance that obstructs radical compassion. What kind of ignorance or delusion makes it hard for people to get to the root of unconditional compassion? I'll speak for myself. How What I've discovered in myself is when I am unable to feel compassion, there's an armoring. My heart is kind of armored. It's because I'm afraid to touch into the vulnerability that's there in some way. I'm pulling away from either my own vulnerability or somebody else's. And by way of example, and this brings us a little into more kind of current event type things, is that it's much easier for me to stay angry at people I think are causing violence and trouble than it is for me to feel the fear and the grief I have around it. And so I see that, you know, when I'm not in that more compassionate space towards myself or towards them, it's because there is a conditioning, a trance that pulls away from vulnerability. And it feels like our biggest task, really, for our own heart's freedom and for the world, for the, it's really the medicine for the world, is to see how we do that and be willing to lean in, to have a kind of a courageous heart. Courage means a greatness of heart that really is willing to feel feelings. So that would be the biggest block, Rick, is this habit of not feeling feelings. Now, I want to say that the more trauma we've had, the more we need that protection, and those feelings can be overwhelming. So the answer isn't that, well, if you've been traumatized and now you feel trauma and you're not feeling compassion, you should go feel your feelings because it can be really wise to let yourself stay protected. If you've been violated and you're feeling a lot of fear to just keep that protection, feel that anger. Anger is intelligent. Anger tells us to protect. So this isn't an invitation to trash any of the protections and feel vulnerability, but eventually that's exactly what it is. It's the invitation to, when we can, open to the most difficult feelings and hold them with compassion, and that'll give us the space for other people in our hearts. 
In radical compassion, I think that a lot of people are looking for things to do these days in order to manage these experiences that we're having of stress, fear, anxiety, you know, a lack of self-compassion, whatever might be going on for somebody right now. You have a key practice, which you call the RAIN, I think, meditation. What is it and how can people use it practically kind of in their daily lives these days? Well, thank you for asking, because it's a particular love of mine, this RAIN practice. And I have had, especially during this pandemic, more people have told me that RAIN has saved their life than any other practice I teach. And RAIN is nothing new. RAIN is simply a weave of mindfulness and compassion. It just happens to have steps that make it easier to remember. As soon as we have that limbic hijack, when we're in confusion and reactivity, you know, somebody says, be mindful, we can't find our way back to anything. So just saying, okay, RAIN, I'm going to do RAIN. So RAIN's an acronym, and it's the initial stand for R's recognize. A is allow, I is investigate, and N is nurture. And one of the experiences I had that actually was before I wrote the book that inspired me, because radical compassion is a guide to using RAIN, is my mom came down to live with me and my husband when she was 82. And she came at a time, and actually the truth is I'm always busy, but at one of those always busy times. And I got really caught up in feeling anxious about getting things done. Whenever I was with her, I was part of me was going, God, when can I get back to work? You know. And I remember one day seeing her as she she had just dropped off an article in my office because, and I didn't even look up for my screen. And I saw her retreating figure. I'm looking that way because that's where it was, and thought, Wow, I don't know how long she has. And then I just said, Okay, let me do some rain with this anxiety. And so, our recognize the anxiety. Is actually sitting right in that couch, allow it to be there. In other words, the beginning of mindfulness is not to push away anything, not to judge it, not to fix it, just allow it to be there, like letting a wave belong to the ocean. And then that gives enough space to begin to investigate. And with investigate, you know, I I looked at, well, what am I believing right now? Because I always ask myself, whenever I'm stuck, what am I believing? Because there's always a mental component. And my belief was, if I don't get things done, I'll fail and then no one will love me. You know, it was that kind of a sequence. I say it lightly, but it's for many people and myself, failing and not performing is linked to not getting approval and love. Then I felt that in my body. And investigating is primarily somatic. It's really this willingness to feel what you're feeling in your body, which was a like a twisting, squeezing tension in my chest. And often when I'm investigating, I put my hand where it is because it helps me to keep attention there. It also is the beginning of nurturing because I'm keeping myself company and the touch is tender and I can begin to offer kindness. So I investigate and feel the squeeze. And then the nurturing is, it's like the question, what does this part want for me? How does it want me to be with it? What does it need? That's part of the investigating. Nurturing is the response. It needs me to be kind. It needs me to be forgiving. It needs me to trust my goodness and my intelligence that I'm not going to go give that talk I was writing and be a completely floundering. It's the truth is already here, you know. So I nurtured. After nurturing, I just kind of rested and noticed the presence that emerged. And 
there was much more of a sense of openness and tenderness. And this is back to that identity shift, because rather than being the anxious daughter who wasn't going to get things done, my sense of who I was was really that field of tenderness. And so I'm sharing this with you, Forrest and Rick, because I did reign a lot around anxiety during that year with my mother. And more and more I'd be with her and we'd be you know, having our big salad at dinner and I would not be thinking about going upstairs. I'd just be with her. And I'd be driving her to a doctor's appointment and I wasn't trying to, you know, figure out the fastest way so I could get home so I could get back to something. And we'd go on our walks on the river and I was really there. And so she died about three, four years later. And of course, there's huge grief. She's incredibly dear to me, but not regret. It's like the way people said, rain saved my life. Well, rain saved my life moments with my mom. Mm. And I share that example because when we're in a trance, we skim over the surface of life. We're in reaction. We're trying to pull away from vulnerability, trying to make ourselves comfortable, trying to stay safe, trying to get more for this self that feels like something's missing. And what's so precious, because life just has not that many moments to it, is to really arrive. And I feel like rain helps us to shift from that anxious, reactive self back to that presence that can really savor and serve and live more fully. In my experience with people, the N, nurturing and self-nurturing, is the most difficult. People routinely will talk about being very able to be nurturing toward others in lots and lots of ways, seeing the good in them, being kind toward them, having compassion for them, being decent, being fair, and so forth. But it's really hard to nurture themselves. What are some of the ways you've found that help people develop the capacity to nurture themselves? One thing I found is that with the eye, the more fully we feel the vulnerability, the more naturally there's a tenderness towards ourselves. So the basic alchemy of compassion is that the more we let ourselves be touched by the suffering or the vulnerability, the more there is a spontaneous tenderness. And in addition, we each need to find our pathways to nurturing, which is why I think the question is so important. It's like, I've worked with so many different people and it needs to be customized. And I think that's important because we're so in the habit of giving out formulas, you know? And so what I found is that it kind of divides into two major categories of a sense that some higher part of our own self is offering it inward. And then the other main category is letting ourselves bring to mind an external source and receive from that external source. So by way of example, we can offer to ourselves, and as I mentioned, touch can be really helpful, hard, or you can touch your cheeks or like this, especially if you've never explored it before, to experiment with it because we need touch. And there's a lot of good science that says it helps. We to experiment with imagery, to visualize light and warmth bathing, the very place of where we hurt, to certainly kinesthetically to feel that, to use words, the audio, like where we find the message, you know, ask yourself, what's the message that would truly bring comfort and then offer it to yourself? Sometimes to whisk, mentally whisper your name can help. 
So those are the self to self, and it comes from a more expanded sense of self. But I think most people also have to, at times, invoke an external source. And this is because we were wounded in relationship, we heal in relationship. We need to feel something, especially when we're really stuck in a small self, we need to feel something that's larger, that cares and is holding us. So I invite people to bring to mind either person, a benefactor, or a dear, dear friend, or parent, or grandparent, or child, or dog, or some being, you know, that they really sense loves them, cares about them, sees them. And sometimes it can be a spiritual figure. And for me, often it's a formless kind of a presence. And to just invoke that and imagine if there's eyes, the eyes looking at you with love and having that being send the message. You might even have your hand on your own heart and imagine that energy coming through your hand to where the vulnerability is. But here's the thing, Rick, which you can explain and teach far, far better than me, which is the more you repeat it, the easier Mm. it is to access it. And so for me, I have called on the beloved, my sense of love and presence that's in this universe and is in me, but I, in the moments of being stuck, don't remember that. I have called tens of thousands of times or more and sometimes imagined the beloved as this presence that's actually anointing me or kissing me on the, on the brow. I felt the surrounding, the, the bathing in so many times that just talking about it and it comes alive. And what happens is that after you call on an external source, it dissolves the sense of separation. So you become that loving awareness. You become that presence that you've invoked. And then you realize, oh, it was already here, but you needed that bridge to get there. Yeah. As you well know, as someone who's been teaching and practicing this for decades, there are depths to the RAIN practice and such that is, you can say more about this, of course, that in investigating, for example, there can be an investigating, not just the content of our experiences, including somatically, but the nature of all experiences is impermanent, insubstantial. And you see where I'm going. And then also the end being the not so self person, yes, self not, right? And I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit to the depth of this practice potentially, and, and then we can keep on going. There's depth to each piece. And the more profoundly present and curious and somatically fully there you are, the more the nature of awareness is revealed. So as you mentioned, with investigate, you can see right into radical impermanence. You can really see it. And you can see that there's really nobody that it's happening to and nobody that's owned. You can see all that. It's there. It exists, but there's no owner of it. There's no owner. Well said. And with nurturing, the sense of the holder and the held dissolve, and it just becomes an indivisible field of loving. And then here's what I most encourage, because here's what's most forgotten, is that after those four steps, there's a what I call after the rain. This is the piece that I feel like if it's not explored, there's a real missing out because in after the rain is when you just notice the presence that's emerged and you notice the shift from that small self to this field 
And you rest in that. And it's in the moments of just that realizing and being that we become familiar with the truth of who we are. We start trusting that this is more true than any story we've ever told about ourselves. Mm. Deeper than the story. It's beyond. And the story is just, you know, it's just a small construct of the mind. The what we are, we can't even put words to. But the more times we do rain, and even if there's just the slightest shift, get that intuitive sense of our beingness as greater than any of these waves of stories or feelings, the more we start trusting the gold. And that's the way I I term it. And that's actually the title of my next book that's coming out later this year, that we actually trust who we are. And that is the gift of practice. That trust frees us to live the moments, you know, frees us to love without holding back. You know, it frees us to have joy and it frees us to really hold how profound the sorrows are. It frees us. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to that. I find it very easy to be in a very open and spacious place of compassion, acceptance, recognizing what's there and what isn't. When I'm sitting here talking to two people that I like and agree with. And it's a little bit more challenging for me to do that these days. That speaks well of you, Forrest, uh, that you agree with us. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, I find, I find that. I'm, I'm there. I'm in it. I feel great. And these days, I just think that so many people are really struggling with doing that around people that they disagree with, around the things that they're scared of, around the things that we're struggling with kind of collectively out in the world. And I think that it could be very moral to have a lot of compassion for the dog that has its foot caught in the trap, to use the analogy that you were referencing earlier. But I think that accepting that dog if it's trying to bite me is a little bit more challenging sometimes for people. And particularly when this is applied toward elements of you know bad behavior that are really violent or really amoral out in the world. And I, you know, it's a provocative question and maybe it's a little oversimplistic, but I think that people might ask, how can we accept that? Is it moral to accept that? Or are there things that we can't accept? And I know that you're somebody who's very engaged with these questions and has done some thinking about this. So what's your process been like over the last couple of weeks, couple of months in terms of engaging these questions? Yeah, with that dog, the very first thing that we need to do when the dog is lurched at us is to create whatever distance or protection we can that it is our responsibility to our corporeal being to take care of ourselves, protect loved ones, to protect democratic institutions. We need to actively do what we need to do. Even if we're doing it and there's currents of anger or hatred, we just need to do what we need to do to prevent further violence in the moment. So I'm addressing both the dog and our current situation because you know, my my biggest question right now is, what is it, what's most important to remember in the midst of a civil war? That is my question right now. Um, it could be in the midst of war, in the midst of violence or whatever, but that's just the inquiry. It's like, what do I want to teach about? What do I want to learn in myself? You know, because we are in a civil war. The civil war never ended. It just didn't. It went underground in some ways, in some people's minds, not in the minds of Black people whose bodies have been continuously violated throughout. But now more and more people are getting it that there's a civil war going on. 
and that we never healed the original wounds. We never healed them. We haven't repaired them, whether it's the wounds of genocide towards the indigenous peoples here and the wounds from kidnapping another race from another continent and building our economy on them. We just haven't healed that. And the grasping and aggression that's circling around that, the trauma, the wounds, they're still playing out. So how do we respond right now, given that we're in a civil war? And I do a satsang, a weekly satsang. Sat means truth and song is community. And it's the truth that unfolds when we're together in community. And I do this each week and we explore questions people have on their minds. And that is the biggest question right now is, what you pose for us, like when I am with people or thinking of people who hold views that are abhorrent to me and act in ways that are abhorrent to me, whether it's not wearing a mask in my presence or participating in a violent insurrection and anger comes up in me and hatred comes up in me, how do I deal with that? And so what I've been basically saying is what I've said here is we have to do what we have to do to prevent further violence right now and protect ourselves and each other. And how do we deal with that hatred and anger? And they're intelligent. And if we're doing rain with them, we recognize them and we let them be there. We don't try to get rid of them. There's so many misunderstandings of spirituality that we're supposed to get rid of our hatred and anger. You can't get rid of hatred and anger. You can wake up from their grip. You can relate to them in a wiser way. So There's a quote I love from Ruth King, and she says, anger is initiatory, it's not transformative. So we begin and we feel the anger, and just as I described earlier, we pay attention to the anger and where it is in our body and find what's underneath it and try to, we do what I call the U-turn, where we, instead of being angry at that person, we investigate inward and we bring a lot of care and a lot of attention and kindness to the vulnerability we're feeling, because we're all feeling so vulnerable. And that allows us to take the message of the anger, we've got to protect, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, but not have our identity and our actions driven by it over the long haul. And that's the deal. The Buddhist texts say it best, that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. We can't artificially go to love. We can only go through the portal of bringing a courageous attention to what's under the anger. And if we do, and this is now I'm now I'm kind of rolling ahead a little in terms of the civil war we're in, it's going to be incredibly messy and imperfect because there'll be violence in response to the violence and a hardening of positions. But if enough people are willing to be honest with their feelings and bring compassion to what they're feeling, they will then be able to, from a place of compassion, have the kind of conversations that seek to understand what others are going through, that seek to understand how others might be believing what they're believing and feeling what they're feeling. And it's not going to happen like somebody from the radical left is all of a sudden going to seek to understand somebody from the radical right. It's going to be people that don't feel so locked into an identified ideology, but really care more about understanding, that are just going to start having conversations with people that are somewhat different from them. Because we have to build a muscle. There's this 
muscle of being really interested in knowing what's it like being you. I think of Ruby Sales, who's one of my heroes. She's a civil rights activist. And she has this phrase like, where does it hurt? And she points out the spiritual suffering of the white American male who is feeling just doesn't have the work, doesn't have meaning, doesn't have any sense of importance or place, and is absolutely fighting to have that, and how that's turning out to be white supremacy and violence. You know, She asked that question, where does it hurt? And it's not to give a pass to violent behavior, but it's just because we need to understand. That, by the way, that was profound. I feel like we could all just listen to that on a loop again and again. In, in 2016, Tara, you wrote a really heartfelt piece titled Facing My White Privilege. And I want to, if I could, make a little bit of a point related to what you just said there, which is that it seems to me very clear with lots and lots of evidence going all the way back to the, uh, you know, <laughs> the historical civil war, you know, supposedly ending in 1865, but not really, right? In which people who were top dogs in the system wanted to maintain their top dog status because it made money for them, it gave them power, it gave them privilege, gave them status, and they wanted to keep it. It wasn't that they felt somehow dispossessed and they didn't know what to do and they were sad and unhappy. They just wanted to hold on to their power. And we can still see a lot of that today. People, many of the people, for example, who stormed the Capitol were really quite well-to-do. Almost all of them were really quite well-to-do. Many of them flew to Washington, some of them on private jets. So it's not just that there are people who are upset and we can have a lot of compassion for them and so forth. There, there are people who really angrily and violently want to perpetuate their systemic position. So that's my personal opinion. And so I wonder how you personally practice with people like that. And also to some extent, keying off of what you said about what you wrote about facing your white privilege, which I share as well, white privilege, white male privilege in my case, how do we come to terms with the ways in which, A, we are participants in structural systems of oppression and exploitation, even if we ourselves are decent people who are trying to do the best. And second, what do we do with those people who adamantly, even violently, want to perpetuate those systems of systematic oppression. So to, to start with um, the second, I think it's a mix of who is showing up to riot and be insurgents. I think it's for sure those with money and power wanting to keep their power. And I also think there is an, a growing population of dispossessed. The human heart the small human heart, tends to look to where to blame and feels that they are being dispossessed by Blacks and women and so on. So that feeds a very vehement racism in people that are not well off, people that should be natural allies. It turns them against each other. So that was just, I just wanted to mention that. I think it's a mix. And then how do we deal with the conditioning of all of us white people, now I speak as a white woman, to in some subtle way assume superiority and in all sorts of ways participate in a system that keeps us advantage. And I think that for anyone listening that is seeking to have an awake heart and to be free, it is part of our shared work to unpork or undo and see through 
the bias in our hearts and minds and that that takes work and it's not something we can do alone. I think we need to be together and start looking more and more deeply at the conditioning that keeps us identified as a superior race. And I'm involved in, you know, several different groups that are doing this white awareness work. And boy, just to read Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, just that alone is so fantastic, you know. And then there's a podcast called Seeing White by John Bewin, which is fantastic. And there's growing amount of resources for us to do this work. In my own life, by example, and you referred to the story, so I'll try to share it in a very brief way. I was part of a mixed race group of teachers, and we were very dedicated to, you know, seeing how we could create more diversity and community and so on. And I, it was at the same time that I went through this downward spiral of sickness. Um, this is about 10 years ago now. And I asked at one point if we could meet, not meet every two weeks, but meet every three weeks or every four, whatever it was. And one of the black teachers was really upset with me. She felt like I was betraying, betraying the cause and that I was jumping ship and that she was just really angry at me. And I felt like I had revealed a vulnerability that I'm having a hard time. I'm sick. I can't, I have too much on my schedule. I've got to spread it out. And so we left the meeting kind of at odds. And I did a lot of, I used rain and I recognized and allowed my feelings. And I realized how I felt really hurt because rather than caring about me and my health, you know, she was making me a bad person. And I brought compassion to that. And I opened my heart to, you know, sense her, but I could not for the life of me, you know, I was trying to seeking to understand where could she, how could she come to that? And I just was blocked. So I talked to a very wise friend, another woman of color, and she said, you know, Tara, for you, it's an important cause, but for her, it's life and death. And wow, you know, and then I started remembering how her grandson was in prison and how she had at one point during all the killings on, you know, that were going on it, you know, talked about how these are my sons. And so... I got it. And my, my mm -hmm. heart opened. And when we talked, you know, she said, you know, she, she also was doing processing and she could include me in her heart. And, but it was even more than that. It was not only that I was not seeing what it was like for her, but I was operating off of a very privileged position. I was a more senior teacher. I'm a white woman. I could say to everybody, hey, guys, I want us to meet less frequently. And so it was unrecognized power there too. And soon after I went on a vacation with Jonathan and I remember we were swimming, swimming out to this island and I was swimming with grace and ease and strength. And then coming back from this island, I just struggled. I landed up on the sand panting, you know, and I realized that I'd been carried by the currents out to the island, but mm. that I'd been against the currents coming back. And something in my body really registered more than ever we are so carried by the currents, we white people, and we just do not get how hard it is to be a person of color in the society on a daily level. Yeah, it's a touching reflection, Tara. And I think is hopefully, and I think in an ongoing way, is a, a process that a lot of people are going through right now in their personal lives, a process of reflection and investigation into these issues and questions. That's the hope. That's why I'm actually hopeful, you know, that 
there is a waking up that's going on and a deep and caring. And we have a lot of, we're pretty, you know, attention deficit in terms of sustaining our attention. So I'm really hoping that white people keep caring, keep intentionally turning towards the violence that is imposed on people of color every day. Because it takes leaning in and paying attention to the suffering to keep caring. For me and all this, there's there's a place for trying to understand things. And that's partly my nature. I like to understand things to a fault. And okay, great. But really, 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 much like you said, at the root, at the heart. For me, a lot this territory is what's helpful and what's in it is is the combination of anguish and love. People might use other words, but anguish and love, just anguish. Oh, wow. And love and and having with your teachings and others capacity, hopefully growing a little bit every day, to be in and tolerate and flow with anguish and love together. Mm, thank you. In some way, that growing that capacity so that we're we have to be uncomfortable and we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And those words are so powerful to really open ourselves that way. For me, it's just heartbreak. It's like letting my heart be broken over and over. And broken open over and over and over again. Exactly. Yeah. I love you, Tara. I've never said that on a podcast. I'll just say it right now. Well, it's mutual. <laughs> you, you know, we, we go back and we have a lot mm-hmm. of trust a lot of trust and a lot of trust. love. Thank you. Trusting the gold you are and we are at the heart of it all, at the root of it all. So that we can be with each other right now and actually really sense the consciousness and tenderness that looks out through those eyes. It's such a treat. Your questions go right to the bone. They're really good and just feeling you very much a part of this. Well, thank you, Tara. I mean, I, I truly appreciate that. And it was just so lovely to have you here today. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Well, I was looking forward to it because I knew, you know, as interviews and podcasts go, that this would be the most flowing and authentic it could possibly be. Today, we had the true pleasure of speaking with Tara Brock, a wonderful teacher and truly, as you probably heard throughout the conversation, an incredibly heartfelt person. We began by organizing the conversation around acceptance and compassion, two topics that are particularly important these days and that are major focuses of Tara's work. Tara began by explaining what she meant by the word radical in the title of both of her books dedicated to those topics, and how she frames it as really getting at the root of something or exploring its real heart. Much of the conversation focused on how those two topics can be applied today, both toward ourselves, as I asked the question about how can we be both self-compassionate and self-accepting, while also being motivated to making positive changes in our lives, which I thought Tara responded to really skillfully. And then also out in the world, how can we have compassion or acceptance on any level for people who we radically disagree with or who we believe are behaving in profoundly violent and immoral ways? Tara addressed the first half of that question, what can we do with regards to ourselves, by really focusing on, in my mind, the distinction between being and a very ego-driven view of the self. 
how the being is constant, the being is something that we can hold, that wholeness of being. But when we start to fall into very ego-driven, craving-driven, grasping, attached versions of the self, where we're trying to pursue change from that place, it really doesn't work out for people well very often. And it's only when they move into a more holistic sensing of the whole and compassionate relationship with themselves that they're able to create that positive change that they want to see. Then, when applied out in the world, Tara used the analogy of a dog with its foot caught in the trap. We can have compassion for the dog, and once we recognize that the dog has its foot caught in a trap, it's a lot easier to have compassion. But it's only right to create some distance between you and the dog so the dog doesn't bite you. And man, these days, it might even be appropriate to have some anger, some frustration, a feeling of, we can't stand for this anymore, toward the behavior of that dog. One of the things that Tara centered that I found really interesting was the mobilizing role of anger, how anger is essentially a stage in transformation. It's not the final stage, but it is a mobilizing part of the process. And collectively, in America right now, we're really in anger. That is the stage of the process that we are in, and hopefully we'll collectively move somewhere else. But that mobilizing force is in some ways necessary to get us where we want to go. We might not like it, it's not ideal, but it's where we are right now. Tara closed with a really heartfelt reflection on her own white privilege and the ways in which her life has been made easier by the status that that privilege conferred upon her. As we mentioned during the conversation, the paperback version of Tara's book, Radical Compassion, came out recently. I'll link to it in the description of today's podcast. It is a wonderful book with a lot of wonderful and profoundly useful tools in it. And there was just so much from this conversation that I'll be taking into my own life. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. You can also find us on Instagram. We're at beingwellpodcast on Instagram, and then Rick and I both have our own private accounts. If you're interested in supporting the podcast in other ways, you can join us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, thanks for listening.